Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Last week we um, read about the crossing of the Red Sea from the, um, the Hebrew people as God is bringing them out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And then this morning we get in Exodus 15, 1 through 10, uh, kind of the initial response to that. Again, this is Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us, which reveals uh, who you are and who we are and who we are to be in you. God, we pray that you would help us this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to think and hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives, be changed, and to live our lives in right relationship with you, with each other, with all creation, because of what you have done for us in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. There is more to it than that. That's where we'll stop for today on. Looking then. Uh, Turning to our gospel reading from Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 14, you may notice that uh, this section is kind of separated in our Bibles from the rest of Mark, Um, and it says that uh, it's in italics generally, even, and says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And so you look at this and go, is this actually a part of the Bible or not? And uh, it's kind of that in-between where uh, it's kind of not part of it on the one hand as uh, the earliest writings we have of Mark don't include this. So this seems like it was added later. On the other hand, it was added enough times (laughs) that it's like, eh, you don't just want to leave that aside. And so it gets put in here. So kind of full transparency, this is what uh, has been included in lots of Bibles over the years. Um, but it is set aside so that you know. And I love that our uh, modern translations do give us that sort of insight into um, 
yeah, <laughs> part of that whole process of how the Bible gets to us. Looking then today at verses 9 through 14, it says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. He, she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And we will finish up that book next week. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are looking at Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, and here, again, we will finish up this book next week. Um, We have been looking at the book of Revelation Sunday after Sunday for about the last 11 months. I think we started it last June, if you can believe it. (laughs) And as we have gone through this book, um, we have seen some strange sights. We have heard some strange things. And so as we are getting to the end of all of it, the question is, so what do we do with that? What do you do with the whole of uh, this book of Revelation? And uh, so this is kind of where John is as he has received this revelation. He has actually seen these uh, visions. He has heard these voices and these sounds. And now as he gets to the end, after hearing and seeing these things, does he do? So this is uh, Revelation 22, verses 6 uh, through 11. It says, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up, do not seal up the words of, this, of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. All right. As I say, next week we'll get to the, the very, very end, but here we are at almost the very end of the whole Bible. And here we have uh, John's reaction. Did you notice how John reacted after hearing these things, after seeing these visions? What was his initial instinct? It was worship, right? Praise and worship. He had seen these amazing things, and so he, he turns to this angel who's been showing all of it to him. And it's like, this is amazing. Therefore, you must be amazing. And therefore, he falls down to worship the angel. And the angel says, <laughs> paraphrasing, knock it off. <laughs> what are you doing? Have you not understood this whole thing? And so uh, I think... This is, by the way, the second time that John has done this in the book of Revelation. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. 
it kind of makes sense in the sense that when we see something amazing, that is our internal instinct is to praise. When you see, um, when you see an amazing, uh, <laughs> an amazing touchdown catch, if there's somebody else in the room who cares about football, what do you do? You turn to them and you're like, that was amazing. Did you see that? And you start praising the athletic ability of the player who just did this because that is our response. When we see something amazing, we want to praise. And, um, and so we, and we want to share this experience with others. And the same thing if you see an amazing work of art and uh, you, want to, you want to praise that work of art and the artist who, uh, who made it. But this angel... Angel is a word that means messenger. And so you see throughout the uh, Bible, and this is again where our English translations kind of help us out. Sometimes it's an earthly messenger, sometimes it's a heavenly messenger. And so typically, if it's a heavenly messenger, they use the word angel, but it's just a messenger. And so this messenger, this angel, this heavenly messenger, has been showing him these things, but kind of like a, uh, a museum guide. And so can you imagine if uh, you go to a museum and the guide is showing you these things and it's like, this is the Mona Lisa. And you immediately fall down on your face before the museum guide. And you're like, you're such a great museum guide. I'm not worthy. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Not at all. You go and you see uh, the, the statue David. And you're like, oh, museum guide, you're the best guide ever. You knew right where this was? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a large statue. <laughs> But the, the guide, of course, is going to be like, what are you doing? I did not make this. I just, I just showed it to you. That's it. Just pointed at it. <laughs> but somebody did make this, and they were an amazing artist. And, of course, I used the, uh, the statue David as an example. I think that uh, Michelangelo, if you were to you know, bow before him, would say, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm only copying in marble what God does in living flesh. This is... Just like even the statue is supposed to point you to something else, to point you to something greater. That's who we're supposed to worship. That's who we're supposed to be praising. And so when, uh, when John has heard and seen all these things, like the appropriate response is worship. It's to worship God. And what we have seen, and so you go back to what we have seen and heard throughout the whole book of Revelation, and we've talked about how this is the revelation of uh, God's victory in Christ. Um, to the church. And this is, uh, so this is what John has seen and heard, and this is why this is the appropriate response, is worship of God. If we think about it, John is living at a time where things are hard for him personally, for the church, and hard things are coming. John is living at a time where he is actually living on an island because of his faith in Jesus. Um, most likely he was sent there as like living in exile uh, because you can't say Jesus is Lord in an environment where you're supposed to say Caesar is Lord. And if you keep saying Jesus is Lord, well, then we're going to send you to an island at best. (laughs) Or then you have someone he mentions like Antipas who was actually killed for his faith. So things are not good for uh, John at that time, things are not good for 
uh, Antipas for the church at that time. And so it would be easy to kind of look around at everything and go, well, I think that it's the, it's the powers of this world. That's where the real power is. And here we are as a church, and we have no power. We are the ones who are just at the whims of whatever it is that the real power wants to do. And so if uh, we see these forces, whether they are you know, part of the you know, other people who are just persecuting them generally, or if it, whether it's all collected as sort of this Roman empire that's persecuting them, like either way, all the power seems to be in someone else's hands, and the church doesn't have any. That's how it seems. But what is it that this whole book has been saying? It's saying that way that it seems, the way that it feels to you right now, that's, that is illusion. That there is a deeper reality behind all of this. And so if you think about it, and we've been reading the book of Exodus as we've been going through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of common themes throughout the, the two of those. And so if you look at the, uh, the people, Israelites are coming out of uh, slavery in Egypt, and they get to that point where they are on the edge of the Red Sea. Haven't crossed it. In fact, it still looks quite uncrossable. And they've got Pharaoh's armies coming behind them. And they're crying out, why? Because it seems like Pharaoh's got all the power. His army has all the power. Like, what are we going to do? Outrun the chariots? I don't think that's going to work. They're going to catch us. They're going to slaughter us. We have nothing. We have no way of defending ourselves. We have no way of actually escaping. You have brought us out here to die in the desert. That's it. That's how it seems. That's how it appears. That's how it feels. And then you turn a couple pages and you realize that was all wrong. That actually, and this is where you get the the response of uh, praise in Exodus 15, is because what happens in Exodus 14 is God makes a way where there is no way. He brings the people across on dry land. And then as Pharaoh's armies come in, it's like there was a trap that had been opened for them and they fell right into it. And you get to the other side of the Red Sea and they look back and they go, Oh, oh, we had it all wrong. We weren't powerless. (laughs) It wasn't that we were powerless and that Pharaoh had all the power. It's that God was actually the one that had all the power. And that by comparison, yeah, sure, our power to Pharaoh's power is nothing. But Pharaoh's power to God's power is nothing. It is no contest. And so when they get to the other side of the Red Sea and they see what God has done, they respond in this song of praise. And they are worshiping God who is the one who is worthy of our praise and and our worship. And we look at the book of Revelation and we see something similar. And you look at uh, you look at the the church that is being persecuted back in uh, in John's day and you go, well, it's the it's the empire of Rome. That's what has all the power. That's what has the power. And the church has no power. And in fact, um, if they want to you know, slaughter all the Christians, that's what they do. They got all the power. But this is where Revelation shows us something different. It says that is illusion. That's what it feels like. It's what it seems like, but it's not real. And so you get visions of things like, um, and you hear prophecies of old of, the lion of Judah 
And so there's sort of this idea that, yes, one day God is going to send this lion who's going to, you know, show up as one who's going to be like this lion that's going to uh, trample over our enemies on our behalf. Won't that be something? <laughs> and then you get to chapter uh, chapter 5, and you have this, so I heard, hey, look, the lion of Judah. And I turn and I look, and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb that has been slain. Standing, because it's alive. And, it's, and we see a slain lamb in, on the throne. And you go, what is going on? And what's going on is that it's this, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You look at the, um, the way that Jesus shows up and defeats the powers by his own death and resurrection. And this is what's actually real. And so you play that out all the way to the end. You say, if, if Jesus beats death, if Jesus disarms the power, if, his, if by his death he, he wins the victory, by his sacrifice and then by his resurrection, he has the victory over all of it, then that's where the question comes in. Then what do we have to fear? This is what you have in the end of um, the book of 1 Corinthians. Get there real fast. In the first Corinthians, Paul is talking about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, uh, starting in verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We look around and we say, it looks like death is winning. It looks like suffering is winning. It looks like pain is winning. It looks like sorrow is winning. But the resurrection of Jesus says that that's actually an illusion. That those things appear to be winning. But they will not win. And so, um, this is what we have seen throughout, uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Is that it is the resurrection of Jesus that displays the victory that God has already won in Jesus. And it is revealed to us in all kinds of uh, pictures and images and sounds. But this is the message. And so then what is the, what is the response? As I said, I think John had the right instinct of response, which is praise, worship. <laughs> but he turned to the wrong source. He turns to the angel and wants to praise him. And I think we often fall into the same uh, position as John did. In fact, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians uh, here at the end. We're talking about the resurrection. But earlier in 1 Corinthians, which is where we're going next, by the way, in case you're curious. Um, and I mean, after we finish Revelation. One of the issues that the Corinthian church was facing is that there would be people who would come and would proclaim the message of Jesus the good news of Jesus, who would reveal this is who Jesus is and what he has done. And the church got divided over that. Like, how do you get divided over people sharing the good news of Jesus? And it's because, well, I like the way this guy proclaims the good news of Jesus. And somebody else is like, well, no, I like the way this guy proclaims the good news of Jesus. And it's like, what is, why? Why are you bowing down to these people? 
These are like the, the guides in the museum showing you what we ought to be uh, looking at. And that together, this is um, that we should be praising God. This is what the, um, the angel says when John tries to bow down and worship him. And he says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. In other words, we're not, there's not these, this, these levels here and these hierarchies of um, because this angel has declared this, now I'm going to worship the angel. Or because uh, this preacher has said things in a really neat way, now I'm going to worship this preacher. No. We're all together those who are to be worshiping God. Uh, people and angels worshiping God. And then, of course, um, well, we're going to skip back to verses 9 and 10 after we get to verse 11. Verse 11 sounds kind of weird at first glance, doesn't it? Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to, do, to be vile. The one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. Doesn't that sound like a strange kind of almost conclusion of the book? Let people who are doing wrong stuff keep doing wrong stuff. Doesn't it seem like it ought to be a, make sure everybody quits doing wrong stuff? Right? Don't we feel like that? Just make everybody stop it? <laughs> people doing wrong stuff, make them quit it. That's not, the, that's not what it says. It's actually, let them keep on. If that's the way they're going to go, let them keep going that way. But also... Um, let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. This is, you know, you look at, uh, look in the Gospels, and you see Jesus extend invitation to people who don't accept it. Come follow me, and some do. Go sell all your possessions. Come follow me. And a guy says, nah. And he goes away sad. And Jesus doesn't go and grab him and say, you weren't listening. I said, go sell all your stuff and come follow me. He lets him go. And it is sad. He tells parables that specifically uh, point out ways that people need to change. Ways that people are going the wrong direction. Living for something less than the God who created them. And he tells the parable, and then he'll get to the end of the parable, and you kind of expect that he's going to now really spell it out and make sure you understand and, and make sure that you change. And instead, he gets to the end and he'll just say, but the one who has ears here. What? Really? Yeah. Really. And that seems to be the, the end of this as well. Let those who have ears hear. If you hear the message, if you have uh, been following along with the images that John has seen and heard, 
It has not been sealed up. It has been revealed in order for us to know. But it's not forced. And so the question is, what do we do with it? And we don't go around forcing other people. But we share the news. And as, uh, and as we hear in verses 9 and 10, it seems there's something that we are supposed to do, which is, uh, is don't do that. My fellow servant, that's the worshiping angel, don't do that. But he says, instead, what you're supposed to do, uh, he says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Interesting. Worship God. Then verse 10, then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy because the time uh, is near. Uh, Nope, I missed the other part. No, sorry, it's verse 7. That's where it is. Uh, Where it says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. So twice it says, it talks about those who keep the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. What does that mean? It's to live this out. It's to actually live out what we've seen. When you read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this whole other way of living. And then he gets to the end and he says, you know, this isn't just fun stuff to think about. Again, massive paraphrase. <laughs> but he says, you know, those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Those who hear these words of mine and do not put them into practice, like the foolish man who built his house on sand. And uh, that the difference is not the hearing. The difference is actually living it out, putting it into practice in your life, living like these things are actually true. And so if you have seen the images in Revelation, you believe that this is the, the truer and realer word, uh, situation of life, rather than what we get from our five senses. You say, I believe that God knows what he's talking about. I believe that as he has revealed this in Jesus, this is the truth, this, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that this is right, even when we feel something different. I mean, good grief, you know that it can be the case that if you're in an airplane and the plane tips upside down, and, but it's going just the right speed, you can actually feel like you're right side up, even when you're upside down. You can feel that way. Force is just the same as gravity would have been had you been right side up. This is saying we might feel things that are wrong. We might have the situation backwards for how things actually are. That we might be operating as though Pharaoh's got all the power. When in reality, oh no, he doesn't. (laughs) And so the question is, when you're in a situation where it feels like Pharaoh has all the power. Do you live like Pharaoh has all the power? Or do you believe, no, I believe God actually has all the power. And I'm going to live life according to that. Um, there is a, there's a Greek word, hupomene. It's okay if you want to practice saying that out loud. Hupomene. It's, it's a fun one. Hupomene? Yeah? Anyone? No? Nothing? Okay. I had a professor uh, in seminary who I will always remember this word because he actually said <laughs> that uh, about this particular word, he said, I would burn this word on your brains had I the technology, <laughs> which was a graphic image and it kind of stuck with me. Um, but the reason he said that he, would, <laughs> he wanted to do that 
is because it's such an important concept, not only through the New Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation. The word means perseverance or steadfast endurance. Upamene, perseverance or steadfast endurance. In other words, to keep going even when things are hard. To keep going even when we get afraid or there are pressures to go off the track. Or when we're tempted to go off. And so this is really, if you kind of think about it like a tightrope walker, and it's like you can fall off this side or this side. Either way, you fall off. It's like, well, is it better to fall this way or this way? No, it's better to stay on the rope, right? And so this is what we get. There are the, the pressures of the world and the forces and the threats and the fears that try to push us off the one side. But then there are the temptations and the, hey, maybe life would be better if, you know, you went after these other things instead of following Jesus. And then it gets you to fall off the other way. And that the message throughout the book of Revelation, as well as the rest of the Bible, is neither. Hupamene, <laughs> perseverance, stay the course, steadfast endurance, faithfulness. This is uh, what it's about. Continue to live your life in relationship with God and trusting him that what he says is the case. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15. The last verse of that book, after saying, you know, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe this, then he then says, therefore, my dear friends, no, my, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is what uh, we get to the end of the book of Revelation and it's saying the same kind of thing. That, uh, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain that we continue to live according to the vision uh, that John has received, revealing the victory of God in Jesus Christ over all the other forces, all the temptations, all the threats. God wins in Jesus. And so if we live according to that, we worship him, we sing his praises and, uh, and glorify him, it will not be in vain. Question is, do we have ears to hear? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.